Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I'm having a chat with Afenia uh, Leong, who's the director and co-founder of Digital Crew, positioned as a multilingual digital marketing company. Welcome, Afenia. Thank you, Darren, for having me here. Thank you. A multilingual digital marketing company. Does that mean you just do transcriptions? <laughs> Translations, I mean? <laughs> Um, absolutely not. Um, so Digital Crew is a multilingual digital marketing company focused on cross-cultural marketing. So what we focus more is to taking a brand, a company, a business to a different culture. And that could be to a different country, to a different language, or to a different ethnic group within the country. Right. Because, you know, there are a lot of companies out there that do translations, for instance, you know, there's translation services. And we've all heard those amazing stories about when a particular brand or positioning line gets translated into another language, and it means something totally, you know, obnoxious. (laughs) Uh, So... How do you? What do you think about those stories? Well, in fact, we we have never done any translation in our history. Um, so we call ourselves multilingual is because we produce content or campaigns or ideas and strategies for a different culture and different language. So we never actually translate anything. It's if we have to say we translate is we translating culture. But you would have to perhaps uh, interpret yes. a strategy or a positioning or things into that market, wouldn't you? So what we usually do is we uh, interpret a brand, say, in English, and we our strategist will reproduce the whole thing in, in language, for example, in Chinese. Mm. So, so what markets do you work in? Let's get that Oh, yeah. Um, While well, we're in seven, uh, we have seven offices in five countries. So that includes right. Australia, China, India, Japan, and US. Okay. So is most of that uh, like Western uh, markets like Australia and the US wanting to go into those markets or is there, you know, into China, into Japan, into Hong Kong or, or India? Or is it also... Um, marketers in India and China wanting to go to the West or even to each other? Uh, You are absolutely right on that point. Um, Yes, our uh, mandate is to do cross-culture, which means it doesn't matter where they want to go, is to go to another culture. And at the moment, we do have a lot more um, clients and brands from Western country wants to get into Asia. Of course, because it's the big market. (laughs) However, we still work with uh, some clients from China who wants to get to the Western market and some clients from India who wants to get to China, for Mm. example. It's interesting you should say that because it is natural for Western uh, markets to think about marketing into big, big opportunity markets like China, big economies like China and India. But in actual fact... We're seeing a rise, aren't we, of Chinese brands and Chinese businesses actually exporting to the world. 
as brands. I mean, China has a long history of exporting to the world product, products, manufacturing, manufacturing products, OEMs. Yeah. But at the moment, um, we can see business owners or brand owners starting to realize they they need to build brands, and if they want to actually have a, a say in the world stage, they need to start building brands for the world. Mm. So we can see them starting to realize, wow, we need to um, understand how the Western market works and we need to be aligned and even ahead of other brands in the Western world or the English world. Yeah. Um, and the other, um, the sort of the myth that a lot of people have in the West about China and India is that these are just big markets. It's like one big market. There's a, a belief in that they're homogeneous. You know, the number of people that have said to me, oh, yeah, China, 1.4 billion people. But you can't really think about China as a single market of 1.4 billion people, can you? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, 1.4 is a lot of people, uh, 1.4 billion. Uh, however, there, within that, we have 33 provinces. We have... Uh, 56 races and we have categorized cities into five different tiers based mm. on their population, GDP, economy, political um, status. And also people are living very different lives um, from the north to the south, from the east to the west. Um, so it, it's a very complex and different market. Mm. When we talk about China, for example. Yeah. yeah, and then you go to India and you've got, I think it was 1.2 billion and climbing. In fact, it's growing faster than China as a uh, as uh, an economy and, and as a population, a yes. nation. Um, you've got uh, you know, the same level of diversity and also complexity, don't you? I would say India has a higher degree of complexity in terms of... Uh, audience if a brand needs to advertise in India because um, the official language is uh, Hindi. Mm -hmm. uh, English is just the business language. It's not official anywhere. And every state in India has their own official language. And then, and then every ethnic group within India has their own ethnic language. So yes. there are more than 200 languages spoken. And on average, an Indian educated person would be speaking four to five languages. So, and then they have um, multiple religions in the country and each religion has different sects, subsets of religions. Yeah. So they follow many different customs. So as you go into that, the audience will be resonate with very, very different messaging mm -hmm. as you go across the country. Yeah, of course, because uh, the most effective marketing communications actually talk to someone's cultural beliefs, you know, that it has to resonate with them on the, the values that they hold true and the, and the place that they represent in their society, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, so some of the campaign that we do in India, we would say use English, which is a more trendy language. It's a mixture of uh, Hindi and English. And that resonates a lot more better with, uh, with audience who are born in the 90s. Well, and, and are also a large component of that, you know, rapidly expanding middle class in India. 
Yes. Because yeah. um, that's really what marketers are looking for, aren't they? They're, you know, when we talk about these large populations, you know, 1.4, 1.2 billion people, what we're actually seeing in both those markets is the rapid rise of the middle class, you know, the, the quality of living, their disposable income, their discretionary spend is really what most marketers are wanting to tap into. Absolutely. Um, so, for example, in, in China, we are expecting about 800 million middle class by 2025. And the number is slightly lower in India for that regard. But even though they are all categorized as middle class, they're still very different. They might be living in first year city or third tier city where they have different access to infrastructure or education. Um, level of quality of education. Mm. So they would be very different as well. And for a lot of um, brands entering into these two markets, I think the first step is to understand where they stand in that country and where exactly are their target audience. So sometimes it's not, for example, China, it's not just Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen for the first tier city. And sometimes your target audience might be in a second tier city or third tier city. There are more than 100 cities in, in China has more than 10 million population. Wow. So, um, yes. So yeah. you need to open your mind and be, be a lot more um, um, adaptive. Yeah. Well, and, and understand that complexity and really not just understand it, but get the nuance of it. And, and a good example for me is I think most people would have heard of Alibaba, right? And yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it's just such a dominant e-commerce platform, right? But then there's Alipay and all the other things. I believe there's been a rise of a sort of competitor, but the competitor has been focusing on tier three four and five cities because much cheaper offering of product, even if some of those products are not, you know, real brands, but being very successful. I can't remember the name of Ping it. Door door, maybe yeah, that's Ping Door Door. Yeah, Ping Door Door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's got an amazing valuation as far as, you know, because it has rapidly um, uh, taken this sort of untapped, uh, market, which was the sort of tier three, four, and five cities where people are buying on price. You know, the fact they that they are buying on price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're buying, you know, yeah. they're offering, they're being offered a cheaper alternative on a platform. You know, you would have sat here as an Australian in an Australian market if you'd had an e commerce offering that was so dominant, such as uh, Alibaba. Yeah you would never think that someone could possibly launch a second tier platform that could be so successful because the market is so sort of constricted and, and relatively homogeneous compared to China. I mean, this is one of the things about scale, but it's not just scale because you can segment within that scale if you understand the motivations of those different groups. As you were saying, different education standards, different, you know, quality of life and that type of thing. Yeah, um, so the audience are so comp so 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 large and so various different um, that you actually need to think a lot more <laughs> harder and do a lot more research than mm. 
say, for example, in Australia, mm. um, when you're entering India or or China or even Japan, the product categories and your competitors and where they are in, you really need to find a gap or a differentiator, or 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 a target a group of target audience that are untapped or less serviced by other brands. So to do your research before enter entering is very important. Yeah. For example, we'll, we'll take a, a, a bit, very big brand as an example, um, Xiaomi, which yes. is um, at one point the, the world's uh, third largest mobile phone producer, manufacturing brand. Um, they're very successful in China. But in China, they, they primarily, their, their target audience are middle class, uh, mm-hmm. upper middle class, or well-educated. So first, second tier, people are well-educated with college degrees and and even sometimes have an IT background or more tech savvy. Mm-hmm. But when they enter India market, they relaunch all the products and they launched the, the product they have for India has every single price point from $50 up to $1,000. Every single price point, meaning that every $10 increment, there is a phone for that market. Wow. Because they understood that huge dis- diversity, yeah. economic diversity in India. Yes. Because yeah, India um, on mobile phones, yeah. there was... Like smartphone uptake, smart, you know, the, like the, the type of phone you're talking about, the smartphone, mm. was had relatively low penetration because up to that point, most people couldn't afford it at the lower economic levels. So what they've effectively done is produced an opportunity of having something for everyone. Yes. But also, I imagine, to upsell them so that as people become either more affluent or improve their their economic position, they'll just stay with the brand and just upscale. Yes, absolutely. And um, and that mobile phone penetration in, in India is, well, because the population is so big, the base is so big, so the, the percentage is low, but the growth rate is really high. It's way higher than China. So they have access to internet and information as well. Um, if you look at the capital cities in India, then penetration rate is absolutely quite high. Mm. And also, um, just on mobile phones, yeah, Oppo was very it's successful in, in well. uh, positioning themselves around you know, music and, 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 and gaming and things like that to appeal to a younger segment weren't they? They were much more about uh, older teens, young adults, I believe. So Oppo, um, very interestingly, they adopt similar brand strategy for China market as well as for India market. So they market, they position their brand as as if it's an FMCG brand. So that becomes a very aggressive brand and marketing campaigns. They are all um, quarterly base and they are heavily involved celebrities and mm. top tier um, influencers. Yeah, and and they, you can see them everywhere with all these K- KOLs. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they are well the top tier KOLs. They they're all yeah. celebrities. And it's a very popular uh, acronym, especially in China for marketing. K- uh, you know, key opinion leaders. leaders. Yeah. Yes, yes. And um, because you hear about it all the time, you know, brands wanting to find the right KOL to represent their brand to the particular audience that they're trying to appeal to. 
which is, you know, we, we talk about celebrity endorsements in the West, but this is actually quite different, isn't it? Because it's almost like a mixture of celebrity endorsement, but it's also because of the power of social media in China, it's also a bit like our social media influencers. They, they step, but KOLs step across both of those, don't they? Yes, they are. Um, so there are many ways of categorizing KOLs um, for China or for India um, in this conversation. So uh, we the, the usual one that we categorize is, well, no, there are three types. Uh, one is the big celebrities who we all know, um, well, actresses, singers who are famous. Yep. And the second type is the um, opinion leaders who are actually experts in a field. Mm-hmm. So they could be a celebrity lawyer or, or, or an accountant or, or a professor. Um, and then the third type is, are the, we call sometimes, some people call it grassroots um, mm-hmm. celebrities or um, the KOL next door. So they are ordinary people and they make fame by, well, doing something different on their social media and then they suddenly ha- or they gradually have a, a, a huge following on their social media. Yeah. So that could be, um, some of them could be like from 10,000 followers to millions of followers. And in this whole KOL industry um, in China, it is actually an industry that is mm. about $6 billion worth industry. So there are agencies who groom KOLs. There are schools who, who can train people to become KOLs, and then and then they will move on to signing agency, and then the agency will be dealing with uh, brands who. Uh, so those three tiers or three types of KOLs would translate into a Western market like the US as celebrities, because celebrities are celebrities. Mm-hmm. Then you've got. Um, uh, expert thought leaders, mm. which was the second one. And then the third one would be your social media influencers, the ones who have built a following through social media. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because Western social media platforms are really not as advanced and developed as uh, in China. You know, I mean, it's interesting. Let's go back to e-commerce. So Alibaba has got Alibaba, they've got uh, Alipay. Amazon has never got to a payment gateway as an e-commerce site. Likewise, WeChat has WeChat Pay, but Facebook has never created a Facebook payment gateway either. It's interesting how particularly China, which a lot of, a lot of people in the West are inclined to think you know, are not innovative, are actually incredibly innovative in that they build so much functionality into a platform, don't they? So if we talk about a China digital or e-commerce space, it's, well, they venture our way beyond e-commerce now. Mm. Um, we're talking about two companies, it's Tencent and Alibaba. So they're both building their own ecosystem. And then within that ecosystem, we have the e-commerce platforms like Timor, Taobao, and for um, Tencent, they actually invest in JD.com, which is another competitor for Timor and Taobao. Mm. And then they both have um, their own payment gateways, which you mentioned, WeChat and Alipay. And they also actually have their financial interest institutes. Yeah. And they have their own news um, Mm. uh, 
organizations. So they, they actually control most of the things happening online in the digital world in China. And if we're talking about payment, um, the market share for WeChat Pay is about 41, 42%. Similarly for Alipay. And then the rest are Union Pay and the rest. Yeah, the tradi- more traditional and payment gateways. Yeah, the, yeah the, the banks or the, yeah. um, the banks trying to get into it. But I think there is a reason that the, the mobile payment uh, has been adopted so quickly in China. It's because credit card never took off in China and because people don't trust credit. Mm-hmm. And, and WeChat or, or, or this mobile phone penetration becomes so fast and, and so huge in, in China. And the third reason is I think the government actually encouraged the, the, the company, the providers, to, to use this in order to actually accelerate the cashless society. Hmm. Which they've got a vested interest in doing. Yes. Yeah, so that we don't see photos of uh, apartments full of uh, 100 RMB <laughs> notes stacked high on a pallet because someone can't afford to put it into, uh, into the financial system. But it's interesting because it's very customer-centric and also very vendor-centric. So gate, uh, payment gateways are interesting because it's not just about making payments easier for the purchaser, it's also about making it easier for the seller. And one of the things that blew me away, and this is quite a few years ago, was the fact that you could, and in a tier three or even tier four city, there would be a street food vendor or a small food vendor who would have a QR code that you could just pay with your phone. You would just have to scan it and pay it, and it would automatically pay that amount. I mean, that is so simple for both the seller and the buyer to actually transact. And and that's amazing because, you know, we are still in the West struggling with, you know, things like Apple Pay and, and, and the like. And yet China has taken quantum leaps ahead with uh, these payment innovations. And it's all driven by social media platforms, largely. And e-commerce platforms. And e-commerce <laughs> platforms, isn't it? Yes. Uh, basically, you don't... I mean, in, in China, basically, in the first and second tier city, um, you don't actually need to take your wallet no, out. Just your mobile phone. Just your mobile phone. And as I mentioned um, in other places as well, uh, I particularly like to go to 7-Eleven, for example. I don't even need my phone. I scan my face to pay. Wow. And it's not in a sci-fi movie. It's happening right now. Happening now. now. Yes. And these innovations, because, you know, you mentioned before that Chinese companies and Chinese brands are realising that they're exportable, their brands, to other markets. And, and, uh, you know, it, it was surprising in a way for me, but in South Africa, I was in Johannesburg two years ago, and there in a shopping mall is a big display for WeChat, well, not just the social media platform, but WeChat payments in South Africa. So this is technology and brands being exported to South Africa and the world. Are we going to see more and more of that? I think absolutely, yes. Um, I think both Tencent and Alibaba, they have been investing in a lot of technology companies outside of China. And 
and their expansion it's not just with their own brand like Tencent or Alibaba or their sub brands they're actually funding a lot of um, innovation and technology or fintech companies overseas for example um, Lazada which is the biggest e-commerce platform in Malaysia um, mm-hmm. has bought by Alibaba right. and Paytm in India which is a mobile payment gateway it's owned by Alibaba now Right. So the, their expansion is way beyond their own using their own brand, but also in, in a, a capital way. It is funny because, you know, as I said before, people you know, in the West think of China as being you know, copying trends from the West. You know, we've got uh, the president of the United States up in arms because, you know, uh, he wants to have new IP laws that would stop China copying American innovation. But the Chinese have been innovating for years. I, in I this think technology so. area, yeah, there, there are, of course, there are cases where um, where IP was in, infringed um, in China, but it, the same thing happens in US as well, or in any any country that there are IP um, problems. But I don't think we can generalize with the Indian or Chinese are copying. However, I think learning from each other uh, and paying for it, I think that yeah, that that's how we innovate and improve yeah. the world. You have an operation in Japan. Yes. Right. So, interesting, do you do much work between Japan and China? Because, you know, in recent years, there's been quite a lot of tension between those two markets, hasn't there? Yes. Political Um, tension, but also commercial tension. Yes, there are. Um, So, uh, you're absolutely right. So, um, in Japan, we do more for Western brands getting into Japan mm-hmm. um, and Japanese brands coming to China. Yeah. And so, however, that there has always been tension uh, between China and Japan, and, and we sometimes we don't realize that how close these two countries are in terms of culture. And well, there, yeah, <laughs> you're right, um, because there are a lot of Japanese characters that are the same as the Chinese characters. From that perspective as well, yes. And also a lot of uh, values, basic values like family mm. um, and, and a lot of teachings, mm. uh, very similar. Um, so when we are taking Japanese brands to China, it's actually a lot easier to make the client understand how complex the market is mm-hmm. because they are equivalently so complex in Japan. You have um, a very saturated market in Japan as well, um, where you've got the same thing. You've got hundreds of um, alternatives in the same category mm-hmm. in any industry. Mm-hmm. So they understand um, how complex it is. and. So in that regard, um, taking Japanese brands to China is actually easier for us. Yeah, because as you say, there is that cultural alignment. But yeah, um, I remember um, it was about three years ago. You know, there's a dispute between Japan and China over territorial waters between the two, and because of this, uh, the the this dispute, um, there was almost like a groundswell of rejecting Japanese brands. The being sold. It's interesting how, you know, the political uh, disputes can have a flow-on effect so quickly into the consumer's uh, perception. You know, I remember uh, suddenly there was, you know, swinging away from Japanese automobiles to the the Chinese 
equivalents that are being produced or even, you know, from uh, techno electronics, you know, like Canon cameras to uh, Korean and other um, brands were seen as more desirable because of a political dispute. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you wouldn't see that so much in the West these days. Well, patriotism. Um, yeah. You need to respect that, uh, not just for Chinese, but for Indian, and for a lot of nationality as well. Yeah. Patriotism. Um, it, as marketers or brands, you, you do need to respect that. If you're operating in certain country, you need to respect their values and what they believe. And personally, about 10 years ago, when I was in China, and there was a tension between China and Japan at that time as well, and there are parades uh, protesting Japanese product and people even destroying um, Japanese cars on the street and all of that. But but to today, just, there are still a lot of Japanese brands operating in China, not just Japan, but Korea um, with yeah. China. And at some point, there was some tension politically as well, and consumer wanted to boycott uh, Korean products. But again, still a lot of very successful Korean brands in China. And and even some Western brand like Dodge Gabbani and oh yeah, what we had... just but the mistake that they just made and um, it led to quite a lot of. Um, lost in China for them. And I'm glad you raised that because it's a really, we've had a few examples recently where Western brands have just thought they were being humorous or funny, but they've actually alienated the very people that they're trying to market to. I mean, I, I guess this is where the work you do helps people, helps marketers understand the sensitivities and the and the nuance that what might seem as funny from a Western perspective could be deeply offensive in India or China or even Japan, and that it's important to actually understand that. Yeah, that that's one of the most important aspect of our work is to um, translate a brand culturally um, in, when when they enter into a, a different market and make sure that we still capture the brand essence, where it comes from, what its value and what it stands for, but but can resonate and localize for the markets that they are in, China or India or Japan or Southeast Asia. They all have their cultural environment and the way they think, the way they operate are very different. Mm. I, I, um, we do a lot of work in, uh, in Europe and the UK, which is at the moment still part of Europe. But um, it's interesting because people in Europe are inclined to think that that is quite a complex huh. set of markets, hmm. except they have the U European Union, which is at least unified currency, even though there are different languages and things like that. But in actual fact, you've chosen to operate in a part of the world First of all, it represents a third of the world's population. India, China, Southeast Asia, Japan is a third of the world's population. You couldn't have picked a more culturally diverse, politically diverse, economically diverse part of the world to operate in. Did you do this because you and your partner are masochists or because you just wanted a, a challenge that kept you uh, engaged and interested? 
Um, I think I think both. Uh, I think you're on point. Uh, I I love a challenge, uh, but also we from the experience we've been always been in um, digital marketing and and both me and my partner have worked in collectively five six countries and and that's what we see in the market. It's so difficult for a Western brand to get into India or China, and we see the struggle they have. And of course, as an entrepreneur, I see opportunity to help them. It's because the diverse the differences between the West and Asia mm. that makes our existence valuable. Mm. Now, uh, and and the reason I ask that is because you know the work you do must be uh, sometimes frustrating because you do need to get alignment, don't you? You know, mm. people people are inclined to look at big markets like China and India and think that there's just big opportunity, yeah? But in actual fact, you have to take a long-term view. In fact, uh, I was once told, you have to remember that China's been a trading economy for 5,000 years. Don't expect to be able to dominate it in one to two years. Is that part of the issue that the West, uh, Western companies must confront when they're looking at India and China, that it is a long-term strategy, not a short-term win? Absolutely. Um, we always talk to a client before we start any project is how committed are you in this market? And are you planning to be here for three, five, ten years? Um, otherwise, doing, if you want to try entering China for three months to test the water, which doesn't work because it takes three months to set up a company. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, so, so that's that's always the first step. We we understand uh, with the client: Are you there for the long run? Otherwise, um, don't. When you're ready, you come back. Yeah. Well, because uh, you know, part of it is that, and and this is not just for China, but and India, all, yeah. all, or all any, of Asia, any yeah, all of Asia any market in Asia. It is so much about building relationships yes. and trust. Yes. I always find in the West we do business and then we build, you know, we build the relationship by doing business. Mm. Whereas Asia, it's the other way. You build the relationship and then you do business. And so that's why you need to, take, from my perspective, the long term has to be the play that you make. You can't do the, you know, the short term win. And, and you need to find partners in, in all these places that you want to be and partners in all aspects. It, it could be practically an in-house employee or a, a business partner or a joint venture or a local uh, accountant partner, lawyer, branding partner. You need to start building all this partnership um, in order to navigate all this complex complexity in all this market. And as um, I think in our early chat I mentioned, you travel to a exalted location, you might want to hire a local guide, and it is the same in business. You okay? So does that does that mean um, that you see Digital Crew as the tour guide for business? <laughs> um, for, for is that brand a metaphor? Owners, I think metaphorically, yes, for brand owners, and that's how we. Nav- help you navigate that complex environment and represent and generate ROIs and revenues and build a brand and establish and build and 
thrive for a Western brand in Asia. Mm. Afenia, thank you for your time. We've run out of time. It's been okay. a fascinating conversation. There is so much more I know we should uh, cover, but uh, thanks for uh, coming by and sitting down to have a chat about uh, marketing to Asia, I guess. Well, particularly China, India and Japan. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a lovely chat. Uh, one last question before we go. Um, of all the markets that you operate in, which is your favourite? Mm-hmm.